What's up, y'all? You're listening to WIUXLP Bloomington, and this is American Student Radio. I'm your host for this episode, Kat Spence, and today we're going to be exploring Cheddar, Moolah, Benjamins, Fat Stacks, Cake, and Buckaroos. That's right. This episode is all about money, money, money. I think I need to do like the same. Hello. Live from. Awesome. Okay, great. Like live from Indiana. Live from Indiana University in Bloomington. This is. This is hot. It's a hot mic. This is American, American Student, Student Radio. Radio. That's pretty great. Is it like a sound or is it like. Fresh, crunching snow. Two hours of finger picking. Very good ASMR content. <laughs> Tragic, but also really beautiful. There's nothing like starting our episode on money off with a story about the board game built around it. Did you know Monopoly's inventor was a female? This board game, in fact, has a complicated history. Producer Thenmai Madapati unravels the hidden history behind America's most competitive game. America's favorite board game, Monopoly. Despite the game's minimum seven-hour duration, Americans have consistently enjoyed the thrill of stacking up colorful bills and bringing others to shame by buying up the property. The game simply takes a whole day to be completed, yet Americans still do it. What does that say about us? My name is Tanmay Madipati, from Indiana University's American Student Radio. I'm here today to talk to you about the game of Monopoly and how it relates to our perception of the power of money. Now, collect your game piece, roll the dice, and let's take a trip down the history through the various boulevards of Monopoly. The game surprisingly has quite interesting beginnings. In the early 1900s, Elizabeth McGee, a stenographer, actually invented the game and had it patented to its original name, called Landlord's Game. Landlord's Game works similar to the current version today, with nine rectangular spaces having a go-to-jail and public park as corner spaces. She actually had two setups for the game, both a monopolist and an anti-monopolist version. The anti-monopolist version of this game allowed for monopolists and also competitors. It allowed people to f- reduce the value of the property as well as the taxes, rather than the high prices that the monopolist version had. Her goal was for people to use the game as a platform to argue and come to the conclusion that monopoly should not be encouraged. Unfortunately, the opposite has happened. What I mean by the opposite is that she wanted people to understand that land should be equally distributed amongst others, and the property owner can only determine the value of that land. Now one of America's favorite pastime has enabled a monopolist culture. When the Parker brothers learned about the idea of this game and eventually put it on store catalogs, the game was miscredited to Charles Darrow, which is why I was more inclined to talk about the history. Essentially what happened was there was this competition between McGee's landlord game and Charles Darrow who fought for the Monopolist version of the game. It's the classic rags to riches story, and I'm sure you can predict what happens next. Darrow sells his version to the Parker brothers and makes millions. The irony is clear. 
McGee's hope was to show the act of becoming a monopolist as unhealthy for the society. And yet the same thing happened with her own creation. A monopoly reminds me of the prisoner's dilemma concept. Sorry to all of those that just had nightmares of intro to microeconomics. But yes, here we are again. For those of you fortunate enough to not have taken this course and are like, what's a prisoner's dilemma? I'm here to explain. In its rudiment form, it's a concept that explains game theory, which is when people have to make decisions that either allow them to reap all the benefits at the suffering of others, or learn how to sacrifice in order for the larger betterment of others. And I think we can all relate to this moment. It's four hours into this game of Monopoly. Blood, sweat, laugh, and tears have been invested into this game. And then, someone lands on the boardwalk. Before we can even stop ourselves, we give the player a look of desperation. Please do not buy that house. Do anything, but do not buy that house on that boardwalk. And that feeling right there, that anticipation and despair, knowing that one person has the power and now this game can only go downhill, all that hard work put in seems to be demolished to nothing. And even in the perspective of that lucky guy that just landed on boardwalk, and now has the money to buy that house. Should I do this? Am I gonna be that person? Now, I'm not here to say what's wrong or what's right. It's funny how relevant this board game is about real life. We sure don't get this deep about Scrabble and Pictionary. Money gives us drive, the incentive for success. So much so, we use money to measure the value of our achievements and social standing. And I get it. Money is extrinsic, physical, and quantifiable. Moreover, you can show it off. You can show it off in opulence like property, which Monopoly revolves around. But at what cost? When do we draw the line that money is beneficial at the cost of forgetting we live amongst the community of others? I decided to talk about Monopoly because it's something we can all relate to, or at least know about. While the game is fun, I decided to write this segment to a real tribute for the person who invented the game, Elizabeth McGee, and hopefully pass the message she wanted people to take when she gave the world this game, to remind us that money can have value without being the end-all be-all to remind us that money can make us forget that we live in a community of others, and that community can only work best when we are thinking in the benefit of the whole and not individual parts. To remind us that money and property, or honestly even anything in excess, causes this unhealthy disparity and ultimately enables the materialistic mindset that the infamous board game Monopoly exposes as well. Foreboding, aristocratic, and filled with an insatiable hunger for blood, vampires are one of our most potent metaphors for greed and the kind of power that it creates. And in a world where money is literally power, the connections between blood, the human body, and a capitalist reality become closer and closer. In this piece, producer Peeler Bernarski holds our cultural fears and obsessions close and wonders how deep Dracula's fangs really go. It 
here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah. Dracul. There's a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. I have never met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face. Can take on many forms. things we all know about vampires. They hate garlic. They must be killed with a wooden stake. They love blood. Or maybe it's more like they need blood. And this characterization of the vampire is almost indistinguishable from the idea of Dracula himself. He's both young and old. can appear as mist, as vapor, as the fog, and he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire. Vampires existed in folklore before Bram Stoker's 1897 novel, but in the century since then, they've taken on a singular identity in European-dominated culture. Has no Dracula today is no longer Bram Stoker's Dracula, or not in the sense of being a character from that novel. Dracula has been remodeled and appropriated so many times in both high and low culture that he appears now fully formed, injected into our minds almost without a discernible source. The details of how the vampire became such an accessible commodity are lost on almost everyone, Although we all interact with the idea of the vampire, no longer does anyone think of Dracula as emerging from the original novel or one of the first films as a truly definable character, but as the sum of countless representations, from Halloween costumes to Sesame Street's Count von Count. These representations often aren't considered derivative of the original, since they themselves are based on the idea of the cultural Dracula and not the literary one. Since Dracula has become an idea rather than a definable character, something larger than any truly specific and unique set of traits, he can no longer be owned. He's a true commodity. Since the idea has been traded so many times and in so many ways, he's at home wherever we want him to be. Is 
and so the Dracula that follows is not Bram Stoker's Dracula or any one of the popular versions since, but more likely, all of them at once. In the words of literary scholar Franco Moretti, Dracula is an aristocrat, but he lacks the aristocrat's conspicuous consumption. He does not eat, he does, he does not, not drink, he does not, he does not make, make love, he does not like, he does showy, not like clothes. showy clothes, he does, he does not, not go, go to the theater, theater and he and does he not does go, not go hunting. hunting. He does not, he does hold, not receptions hold receptions and does, and not, does not build stately, stately homes. homes. Not even his violence has pleasure as its goal. Dracula, unlike Vlad the Impaler, the historical Dracula, on all the other vampires before him, does not like spilling blood. He needs blood. He sucks just as much as is necessary, and he never wastes a drop. His ultimate aim is not to destroy the lives of others according to whim, to waste them, but to use them. Dracula, in other words, is a saver, an ascetic, an upholder of the Protestant ethic that many say supported the development of European capitalism, of course helped along by rapid industrialization and colonization. Common fears in the resulting capitalistic societies emerged alongside and with our Dracula. A deep fear of losing individual liberty through monopoly is not far from the terror of losing the control of your life force to a vampire. In less bodily terms, Moretti says, the monster expresses the anxiety that the future will be monstrous. And so, in the case of Dracula, the literature of terror is born precisely out of the terror of a split society and out of the desire to heal it. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. He must be stopped. And of course, the dangers of money. Cash, as we know, should be used according to justice. Money should not have its end in itself or in its continuous accumulation. It must have a moral, anti-economic end, to the point where expenditures and losses can be calmly accepted. This idea of money is, on the surface, crucial to the capitalist ethic. But Moretti calls this the great ideologic lie of Victorian capitalism. A culture which actually holds deeper values of accumulating wealth is ashamed of itself, and which hides factories and stations beneath cumbrous Gothic superstructures, which prolongs and supports aristocratic models of life, which exalts the holiness of the family as the family begins secretly to break up. There's no conspiracy here. Count von Count isn't indoctrinating our children to an obsession with counting. But he might be a perfect cultural product. And when culture and economy are intertwined, the commodity, of course, reflects the same obsessions and fears that created it. You know that I am called the Count. Because I really love to count Sometimes I sit and count all day <laughs> But uh, sometimes I get carried away 
Hound slowly, slowly, slowly getting faster. Once I start in counting, it's very hard to stop. Hey, faster, faster, it is so exciting. I could count forever. Count until I drop. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, I love counting whatever the amount. One, two, three, four. What is the cost of being a queen? A drag queen, that is. I sat down with the winner of this year's Life's a Drag Race here at IU, Noah Balsam, to learn all about how this thrifty queen turns out winning looks on a discount, how money can influence your drag, and what the societal cost of being a drag queen is. I am a cisgender man. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm a drag queen also, so I'm not like uncomfortable with like she, her pronouns um, or being called by my drag name, which is Nora Borealis, but I would always rather be called by my boy name, which is Noah Balsam. Nora Borealis, her, her full name is Nora Jean Borealis. She has the same initials that I do. I'm Noah Jackson Balsam. Nora's whole thing is... I wanted a name that it was very close to my boy name. Nora is just Noah with an R in the middle. Um, and the Aurora Borealis is like, I don't know, it's something cool. It's beautiful in nature. People think it's really special and cool and they want to go like see it in real life before they die. And that's how I want people to feel about my drag. Like, ooh, you got to see that in person to like make sure you get the full experience. So I call myself a natural phenomenon and a freak of nature. I don't want to spend exorbitant amounts of money um, to just be like, to be humbled later on and be like, oh, I'm literally just a person who goes to a local bar and like hopes that people will enjoy what I'm doing on stage. Like, yeah, that's cute, but like, don't spend thousands of dollars just so you can say that at the end of the day. You know, you can ju- you can just look expensive for cheaper, and so I think it's smart to just do that. So I spend a lot of time, like mostly I buy things from Goodwill or like Vintage Vogue. That's where I get a lot of the stuff that I buy. Um, I'll search through dresses and I'll, just anything that looks pretty. I'll look at things and be like, ooh, this is pretty. And then immediately I can tell this might fit me or this definitely will not fit me. And so if it's a if it's a maybe, I'll grab it and take it to the dressing room. Um, and it's, it's always like there's like layers to the process. I have to discover will or I have to decide will this maybe fit me or will it definitely not. Then I grab the things that maybe will go to the dressing room, try them all on. Um, and you never I never really know if I'm going to be able to buy it until I put it on. Uh, because sometimes like it does fit me well, but like the pat like the padded breast in the thing, it like doesn't fit my chest right, and it just looks weird and lumpy. The shoulders are too small, so it doesn't work. No one, no like employees have ever given me anything weird to like feel about. There might have been some like other customers who were like, "What's this man doing over here in the ladies section?" But like I, it's like RuPaul says, unless they're paying your bills, pay them bitches no mind. So I, I'm not. I just like I used to be so self conscious about that. The first time I went to go shopping for drag, I had a friend go with me, and that made me feel more comfortable about like being in the ladies section and looking for tights and spanks and all this stuff. Um, but yeah, now that I'm more in it, I, I just like have no worries, no fears. I'm just like whatever i don't know if anyone's looking at me because i'm only looking at the dresses i'm looking for the so the look is important when you're a drag queen but i have seen so many drag queens come out on stage and they are beautiful just gorgeous queens but they're not really that fun to watch they don't put on a great show and i have never wanted to be that queen i always want to my performance is the most important thing to me so when i'm getting ready to do drag i kind of i try my best with my makeup but if it doesn't look good i'm i'm like that's okay like 
you know, you can create beauty, but you can't create talent. Um, makeup is not like the big thing for me. So I have a lot of elf stuff. I've got all brushes that are elf. I have the same eyeshadow palette that I've been using for the year from elf. Um, and that's what I use to make my brows, my eyeshadow, everything. And just like elf eyeliner, I use a lot of elf stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do a lot of cheap stuff with makeup just because I'm not like super worried about being the most pretty and like the most polished makeup look. Tipping does change how I feel about my performance. Um, the one time that I was self-conscious about it, I went out and I sang a song. And I just didn't make a lot of money. And then I went out and I lip synced the song and I danced and I made more money with that because I think that was just like more easily digestible and like maybe it wasn't a good vocal night for me. Happens, whatever. Um, and I asked two of the more older queens at the back door, hey, like, was that vocal, per like, be honest with me, was that vocal performance good? Because I just like didn't make a lot of money and I don't want to subject people to like, my singing if it doesn't sound good and they're like no it did sound okay but like sometimes people at this bar they don't know what to do when you're not lip syncing like if you tried to come out and do like a stand-up comedy thing they might not tip just because they're not used to seeing that they didn't know they didn't they weren't expecting that so they won't hold up a dollar for you um other queens had said it there's a stigma to being a drag queen people don't want to date me because i'm a drag queen so i saw like that was like the writing on the wall and i knew that was kind of coming my way but before I even did drag, I've been growing out my hair ever since I got to college. And I think that that has turned people off to me, at least appearance wise. Not it, like it's polarizing. Some people love my hair. Some people don't like it. Um, I like it. And that's why I'm doing it. I don't care what other people say. I do see myself continuing to do drag. I have so many ideas that I want to put on stage. I have so many concepts that I want to throw together. Um, as of right now, I am seeing it just only as a hobby, and I'm looking for opportunities to put my art on stage. If I were to do it as a profession, I would need it to be like a side profession. I would need like a day job that like pays me a salary so that I could um, I feel feel personally like I have some shred of like monetary dignity and like professionalism. Um, money isn't everything, but uh, money's a lot of things. <laughs> accustomed to dot-com lifestyle. Name a big company and most likely you'll find a website for it. However, journey back 20 or so years to the brand new creation of the World Wide Web, and these new dot-com based companies were seemingly a valuable investment. Until they weren't. Join Max Sandifer as he explains the dot-com bubble and how, like every bubble, it soon came to burst. We're coming to you from one crazy dog park. Now that you can get whatever you want at Pets.com, it's like Mardi Gras. Pets.com, because pets can't drive. Don't worry, I'm not trying to sell you anything, and this segment is not sponsored. What you just heard was an ad snippet from the now defunct company, Pets.com. This company, selling pet supplies online, seems ordinary enough, until you learn more about its history. You see, Pets.com was founded in 1998, over 20 years ago, and the idea of selling things online was pretty revolutionary. The web company had an extensive marketing campaign, with its signature mascot of a sock puppet dog appearing on everything from talk shows to the Super Bowl. Eventually, stock on Pets.com rose to over $14 per share. This company seemed like a runaway success. Until... 
it crashed. Hard. After less than two years of operation, the enterprise declared liquidation as its stock free fell into an abysmal 22 cent value per share, finally ceasing operations on November 9th, 2000. CNN called it a failure at internet speed. As it turns out, they were losing money on every piece of pet food they sold. Pets.com reported sales of $9.4 million. But those goods cost the company $9.6 million before expenses like marketing and administration. Yikes. Now, Pets.com may seem like a one-off business failure, but it was one of the most high-profile startup failures that detailed the destructive movement known as the dot-com crash. Now, you may be thinking, what is this dot-com crash? Well, here's the rundown. Before the crash, there was a bubble. Investopedia writes that the dot-com bubble was a rapid rise in U.S. equity valuations fueled by investments in internet-based companies during the bull market in the late 1990s. It grew out of a combination of the presence of fad-based investing and the abundance of venture capital funding for startups. I personally find it better to put it in simpler terms and think of it sort of like the song playing right now, Grieg's Hall of the Mountain King. Much like the song, these new companies started out of nowhere, yet slowly started building momentum. Cropping up more and more, the market became saturated with this dot-com surplus. People kept investing and investing in these companies, millions upon millions of dollars. Ad campaigns, technological investment, coming up with new innovative ideas, you name it. It all just built up more and more and more. Just like the song, it eventually comes to a screeching halt when everyone realized one thing. Oh my god, these companies are worthless. We raised 60 million pounds and we invested like like mad for the first you know, three or four months. I think we spent sort of 20 million out of the 60 million in the first six months, which is a, a pretty insane way of going about things. But we were just caught up in this mania. And mid-March, the market cracked. It just started to crack. I suddenly woke up one morning and I said, Bloody hell, what have we done here? This is this is a nightmare. Oh my god, what happened? Hey, what belly up like all the other internet companies. Looks like the bubble burst. Bubbles can burst? We're bankrupt. The stock is at zero. But I have 52 million shares. What's 52 million times zero? And don't tell me it's zero! So how much money did you lose during the dot-com bubble? I kid you not, Tom. $9,000. I think most, I lost about $5,000. The most, the most I've ever lost before. Fads and crazes can put an intense blindfold on some people's perceptions. But unlike Jinko jeans and Beanie Babies, embarrassment isn't the only cost these investors had to pay for the disaster. Frontline estimates that four to six trillion dollars of shareholder wealth evaporated. In the wake of this, we need to ask ourselves what we can do to prevent another massive failure like the dot-com bubble. Whether you're investment savvy, want to run a successful online business, or even just looking to make a quick buck on the stock market, it's important. USA Today provides some great advice. Number one, they first recommend you adapt to your environment. In the world of business and especially technology, everything is changing at seemingly light speed. Things are taken out by better things. These websites can be made obsolete in a split second due to even greater upcoming innovation or simply no desire or demand from consumers. Stay updated and stay in tune with the public as an investor or an owner. 
And number two, an interesting idea isn't enough. Pets.com's idea of delivering pet supplies to owners using the internet was a pretty new and exciting concept at the time. However, it needs numbers, proper planning, and long-term viability to back it up. Clearly, Pets.com couldn't see past that or the expensive ads and thought it would all work itself out. Those are just two brief examples of ways to successfully navigate around the pitfalls of a bubble in the tech industry. It may be of less worry now versus the early 2000s due to the internet's official societal permanence. While the internet is fairly established now and another incident as grand scale as the dot-com crash seems unlikely, a new form of bubble seems to be emerging, this time in the form of cryptocurrency, with investors flocking towards products like Bitcoin or even the meme-based Dogecoin, economists are worried. Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman pens in an article decrying Bitcoin that it is quote-unquote a bubble wrapped in techno-mysticism inside a cocoon of libertarian ideology. But as with most investments, only time will tell if the cryptocurrency industry is here to stay. Who knows? We all may be buying some groceries at the local supermarket someday using bitcoins. According to Newton's third law, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Through an account of the infamous Dr. Money experiment, producer Audra McFerrin explores the effects that the lies we tell have on the world around us. May 4th, 2004. A car pulls into a supermarket parking lot in Winnipeg, Canada. A gun goes off. A man stops breathing. Lies, half-truths, cover-ups, fallacies. All different names for the same concept. The lies we tell ourselves, but more importantly, the lies we let out into the world have the ability to misshape and warp the lives of those around us just as they warp the truth. August 22, 1965. Janet and Ron Reimer welcome their twin sons, Brian and Bruce, into the world. One of these boys will grow up as just that, a boy. The other will experience a very different fate, but both will, ultimately, fall victim to the lies of those around them. April 27, 1966. The twin boys are taken in for a routine circumcision. The procedure fails and Bruce is left with a severe penile damage. Brian does not undergo the procedure. With the uncertainty of the future and the disfiguration of their son hanging over them, the Rhymers consult Dr. John Money, a psychologist and sexologist at the John Hopkins Hospital in Maryland. Through his guidance, they decide to raise their child not as a son, but as a daughter. Bruce becomes Brenda, male anatomy becomes female anatomy, and the child is none the wiser. Throughout his childhood, Brenda is kept in the dark about his birth sex. He, along with his brother, attend annual checkups with Dr. Money, where they are forced to engage in behaviors resembling sexual intercourse. This, of course, was not reported in Dr. Money's research. It was covered up. For over a decade, the Reimer twins continue to see Dr. Money. He reports that his experiment is a success, that Brenda is exhibiting behaviors more girlish than boyish, that he is more of a girl than his brother. The same is reported to Dr. Money by Brenda's very own parents. But what they are reporting is not the truth. It is a fallacy. The truth behind the experiment is that Brenda is very much a boy, a boy who is suffering from gender dysphoria caused by the false identity constructed for him. At the age of 13, the twins are told the truth. It is a source of relief for Brenda, 
who assumes a male identity and adopts the name David. For Brian, it was another reason to dislike his brother, and the beginning of mental disruption that would eventually lead to schizophrenia and depression. July 1st, 2002. Brian Reimer's depression culminates in an overdose of antidepressants. With the death of his brother, David's own mental issues take a turn for the worse. As a result, strain is put on the relationships David has with those around him, including his marriage. Two years later, his wife asks him for a divorce. The lies told by Dr. Money and the truth hidden by the twins' parents ultimately result in disastrous mental consequences for the Reimer brothers. These consequences affect every aspect of their lives and tie their fates together in the most unfortunate of ways. May 4, 2004. A car pulls into a supermarket parking lot in Winnipeg, Canada. A gun goes off. David Reimer stops breathing. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Audra McFerrin. The United States has the highest income inequality of any developed country. At a time when the richest 1% owns 40% of the U.S.'s wealth, it's worth asking, who's getting the short end of the stick? Spoiler alert, it's everyone but Jeff Bezos. In this piece, producer James Keyes sits down with his mom, an underpaid, overworked social worker, to talk money, success, and the thankless job of advocacy. When we worked at West Tom, we made less than our teenagers that went to Hardee's, and they made more an hour than we did. That's right. Working at Hardee's. But that's right. <laughs> did I know that at that time? I, think I don't think I did. You I didn't. think I would have gone to Hardee's. No. But we were just talking about some of our girls that have gone on. They've out-educated some of us. I mean, literally out-educated. And that's always nice to see them. Well, I mean, when you've got one that donkey keeps you in the head and you found out that she's moved on to... um, Well, she pulled a shelf over on me. Yeah, and what'd she do to you, Diane? Oh, no, she didn't do... Oh, yeah, she only did. Yeah, but now she's yes. like now she's hugely <laughs> successful and, and doing really well. And, and that is like, that's like paying it back. That's huge. I mean, she was caught in a rough situation, and she far exceeded what she grew up in. But that's why we do what we do. So that it won't perpetuate. She gets, Mm -hmm. she, she's better in her generation, and then her kids will be better in their generation. And they will. Absolutely. But that's the call to it. I mean, it's not all selfless. Like when you get that, right? When it's almost like a fix. Mm -hmm. When you can impact somebody in a really positive way and you know the rest of their life is going to be a little bit better because of what you did it's that's the a little off. bit addictive and it is wanna, absolutely yeah and yeah. you want to be able to do keep, that keep helping keep helping keep, keep helping, helping as it, many as possible it, it doesn't always turn out that way but it's if you get not, one in 50 it's like one in fifty is is a solid excitement. It's it's yeah, good. It's yeah, it is. I just like one person is huge. 
the, the thing about it is, is at the end of the day, when I go to bed, like, I know I did good, you know? I may have helped somebody. And what, I think all of us take turns in our life and we make decisions and, and make maybe career choices for things other than money. What I'm doing now, I don't make as much as I think I'm probably worth, but um, I also get to do things that affect the way a lot of people live their lives. So if I can make it better for um, an LGBTQ kid in a school because maybe they can't use the bathroom of their choice, but at least they have safe spaces within that school to go. To me, that's a home run. But, um, you know, they've never paid people in our field what we're supposed to be paid or what, we sh what we're worth. Yeah. It, it's just not the way it is. For American Student Radio, this is James Keyes.